I see the future that's within our grasp. From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison. Democracy is not a prophecy, it's self-actuating. I'm Claire Salmi. I'm Cole Wozniak. And I'm Fiona Hatch. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. This is 1050 Bascom. On this episode of 1050 Bascom, we're honored to welcome back Professor Kathy Kramer to the podcast. Professor Kramer received her bachelor's degree in political science from UW-Madison and her PhD from the University of Michigan. She's researched and written about political behavior and polarization for a long time, and is author of The Politics of Resentment, Rural Consciousness in Wisconsin, and The Rise of Scott Walker, an award-winning book which many national journalists and scholars said was helpful in explaining Donald Trump's presidential victory. Today, we will ask Kathy on her thoughts about the state of the national economy and how it's influencing politics and polarization. Be sure to stick to the end to hear your very own hosts get put on the spot by Kathy herself. We had a wonderful discussion with the professor, and we hope you will enjoy too. Well, we just want to start by saying thanks for joining us again today and in person this time, Professor Kramer, and it's always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. It is my honor. Thank you for inviting me. Today, we thought that we would start with some questions about your role as the chair of the Commission of Reimagining the Economy, which is for the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. So would you be able to tell us um, a little bit about the work you're doing for that commission and what some of the goals and questions you all are addressing? Sure, I'd be happy to. So I should explain that the American Academy of Arts and Sciences is a fellowship organization. People are selected, sort of nominated by existing members and then voted on by their peers. And it's been um, a resource in this country since um, about Benjamin Franklin's time. He was one of the founders. And the Academy likes to identify big problems in society and then bring groups of people together to try to address them, if not solve them. And so the, the question for this commission was, how do we reimagine the values and the metrics and the principles that underlie our economy? Because it's clear that there's lots of people who aren't thriving in this economy and Americans don't agree on a ton of things these days, but it's very clear from public opinion polls at least that uh, there's sizable majorities that think that the economy needs to change. So. Um, a 2021 Pew Center poll said 66% of the American public thinks significant things need to change about the economy. So what we're trying to do is think about what are the problems, the major problems in the economy, what policies and practices can be changed so that more people can thrive, and also how do we even measure what's wrong with the economy. So I'll just give you one example of our work We've identified that typically when we talk about the health of the economy, we talk about things like GDP or sometimes unemployment levels, but that hardly touches what people are actually experiencing. So we're creating a new metric that measures both whether people have economic sufficiency, just what they need in order to get by, if not thrive, whether there's mobility, whether the health in the among the American public is at a basically decent level and whether people feel like their voice is being heard. 
So the last thing I'll say about it is my one of my major roles as a co-chair of this commission has been to listen to members of the American public, especially those who are really challenged by the current economy, because those of us who serve on the commission are at least a few steps removed from economic hardship. And it's been really important for us to listen in closely to what people are experiencing to better, just to equip us to come up with policies and practices that are really going to change their lives. And was the Local Voices Network the result of that commission work as well, or was that just two interrelated things? Interrelated. So Local Voices Network I'd started working on um, back in 2017, but we actually used Local Voices Network, and I'll say LVN for short, as a platform for listening um, across the country for this commission work. Mm -hmm. And I know that some of the data from the LVN has been incorporated into things like local elections and debates and such. Would you be able to tell us like what the attitude from candidates or the programs that are using that data now yeah. were? Like, I'm curious how the response went when you went to candidates and you said you have to talk about these things that we collected information on from random people in your district yeah. or whatever. So the, the clearest example of doing that, using LVN for that, was the Boston mayoral race a few years ago. And the candidates... I'm not sure what they say in private, but they uh, were on these public access television shows listening to clips from conversations that had been held throughout Boston and then asked to respond by a local journalist on air what hearing these expressions of challenges people are facing or what they want to, you to address as mayor if you become mayor. How do you respond? What would you do? And their attitude seemed to me, at least on air in those broadcasts, seemed to be gratitude for the ability to hear what people are thinking. And these mayoral candidates didn't say it out loud, but often just inside conversations with policymakers or elected officials, people want to know what their constituents are thinking and feeling, but they don't often have the time. Yeah. And do you think between the work of the commission or the work that you're doing for the commission and then the Local Voices Network, do you think that's a good solution to the issue of candidates not having enough time to really collect that information from their constituents? Well, it's somewhat of a remedy, but honestly, I think a more important fix would be reducing the influence of money in our elections because the major problem seems to be there's a variety of problems, but the major problem seems to be they have they have to spend so much time raising money if they want to stay in office to be able to address the problems they they want to address. So even if you put it in the most charitable terms that it's not about power, but they want the ability to be in the conversation and address the concerns of their constituents, they have to spend hours every day raising money. So I think there are other issues too, like at the federal level, um, members of Congress have to represent so many individuals, it's impossible for them to listen to every corner of their district, right? So we could add more members to the House of Representatives and that would help. While we're on the subject of economics and politics, we kind of wanted to ask you about your research that you've done on Wisconsin, um, which is an incredibly divisive state, especially in a really polarized time. And we were wondering if you could talk a little bit about the role that you think the economy and maybe the perception of the economy plays in polarization in Wisconsin? I think it's huge, to be honest, because the economy for everybody, nearly everybody in Wisconsin and across the country has changed so much since the 1970s. 
and people are just not earning when you, you look at relative dollars across the years just earning what they used to doing the same occupations and it's been harder and harder to make ends meet for so many people across the board and when that happens among humans um, when people are struggling to just have sufficiency just have what they need in order to be well right well meaning healthy take care of their kids have time to spend with their loved ones they want an explanation for what has happened especially when they look to older generations and recognize that it used to be the case that working a job similar to what they're doing or what their parents had or their grandparents had used to be enough for all of those things so something has happened right so people look around for, for explanations and so it's that basic level of insecurity which makes people ripe for someone to give them a story about who's to blame and in my mind like that's the basic ingredient of divisiveness because then an entrepreneurial politician whomever can come in and say you're right like you're right to be upset you do deserve more and you know what it's their fault and your book, The Politics of Resentment, which focuses mostly on rural Wisconsin, just for the listeners who might not have that background, um, I believe was published around 2016, right? That's right, yeah. Do you think that the divide has gotten worse since you conducted that research? I do. I do. I, I was actually just giving a talk at Ripon College yesterday, and folks gathered there for, for that were asking questions too, and I, I say it has... And I bring them up because I, I said what I'm about to say, and then they had all kinds of stories about their own experience, even just the divide between Ripon and surrounding more rural areas. And I do think it's gotten worse in part because there's now so much attention to it since the 2016 election, just in our news media, in our conversations about what's going on in the political culture here. And just looking at election returns in Wisconsin and elsewhere around the country, it has definitely been the case that um, more rural areas have gone more Republican and more urban areas have gone more Democratic. The suburbs are, it's another issue and it depends what state you're talking about. The suburbs in Milwaukee, for example, that the trend has been somewhat away from the Republican Party. And I should also say this most recent election we had, the Supreme Court election, that trend sort of reversed a bit and it people are still puzzling over why that was the case but in general across the nation yes i think the rural versus urban divide has gotten more intense yeah and i'm going to ask you a really hard question it's okay if you don't have a direct answer sure. but is it the responsibility of political candidates to not amplify that divide and not like capitalize on that for their campaign like would you yeah we all are too uh and i'll explain that in a moment but i think it's very much the case that what our political leaders say, and especially if that gets reflected in our news media or media in general, has an impact on the, the nature of public opinion and what people believe. And we do, we do need our leaders to find ways to convince people in the public to vote for them that doesn't rely on throwing part of the population under the bus or convincing us that we ought to see certain portions of the population as the enemy. But honestly, the divisiveness, I'm sort of two, two minds about this. So divisiveness within the public, and, and I, we do absorb things from social media, news media, media in general, movies, music, so forth and so on. 
and convey that to each other. And we do reinforce stereotypes that we learn from those things, our political leaders and otherwise. So we all play a role in how we interact with one another and perpetuate these divisions. But I have to say, I also find that when I have the opportunity to see, listen to people interacting with one another, not always, but usually I observe people figuring out how to get along and be decent to one another. And I have more faith currently in the ability of members of the public and my students in particular to figure out a way to connect with one another as human beings than I do for our politicians to model that good behavior for us. So forgive me, political candidates and politicians who are (laughs) listening to this, but um, they could be better models, uh, but I'm not holding my breath for that. So yes, I I know other related questions are coming, so I'll stop (laughs) there. I I did actually have a follow-up to that that I wanted to ask. Do you think that... um, some of that some of the reason why there is so much issues with politicians um, particularly playing to certain subsets of the population do you think that some of that comes down to just how the way elections run in this country like I'm thinking about the primary system right now how you focus on if you're going to start in say New Hampshire and Iowa if you're looking in Iowa to you're going to they're mostly a more rural population you might start playing into that divide or if you can win with just a certain subset of the population, then why connect with anyone else? Do you think that it might help to reform the system at large to help political candidates maybe start straying away from that? Yeah. And to be, I mean, to be clear, like, it's always been a political strategy, right, to demonize the other side. So I don't want to sound naive and say this is something from the 21st century But I think the combination of our primary system in which more extreme candidates are more likely to win given who typically turns out for primary elections, Um, intensive gerrymandering, which means candidates can be successful without appealing to people on the other end of the political spectrum, as well as our communications environment in which messages that are provocative and divisive are... um, more likely to uh, be transmitted by us because of our social media platforms and the way the algorithms work, as well as um, be attended to by our news media because provocation and conflict sells way better than look at how well we're all getting along, right? So there's so many different things that make this particular moment in history one in which candidates are incentivized to demonize the other side. I guess sort of tangentially, we're talking about just challenges facing democracy in general. And aside from the role of political candidates in that, there's also growing distrust of economic institutions in general. Would you be able to talk a little bit about the decline in trust in institutions and how it's affecting our current electoral system? Yeah, so right, it's such a major problem because it's across the board, right? I mean, Congress is, we talk about the decline in Congress a lot, or just the government in general, but it's decline in trust in the news media, um, in higher education, institutions and important actors across the board, including scientists and doctors. And it's really an issue, especially in a democracy, because we need, I mean, for democracy to work, for us to be able to have a situation in which we all are making decisions that affect each other's lives, and we also believe in 
institutions that can temper majority rule with a protection of minority rights. Like we need institutions to give us those checks and balances. And without trust in institutions, people start doing things like arguing that elections are false and that they should take the outcome of elections into their own hands because um, they can't, you know, they can't trust the outcome. They start questioning factual and scientific information that's being conveyed by scientists, uh, by the news media, right? So it's, it's really an issue. And in my mind, one, one component of this is that representation, political representation in this country has gotten off the rails a bit in that people, it, it is this variety of mix of things in which people don't see themselves represented in their politics, partly because of the primary system and gerrymandering, partly because of the nature of the news media, but people don't feel heard. Yeah. Do you think that there's anywhere that the right and the left can find common ground as we're seeing this like widespread need for change in the U.S. at large? I do, and I especially see this in my work with that commission on reimagining our economy because it's a very bipartisan commission. We're looking for solutions that appeal to a wide range of people, and some of the, I mean, there are specific things that come up, but there's also pretty widespread agreement on some of the problems. Like, for example, it's pretty clear that geographically, some communities are more challenged economically than others, and that our current policy provision is often through individuals, but it also needs to be at the level of communities, like giving communities like a a variety of resources um, that help a community as a whole to thrive so that individuals within it can thrive. And there's pretty widespread agreement on something like that. And there's other things that we've identified, but I I do believe that it's possible. Yeah. That's a nice hopeful message. (laughs) (laughs) The optimism is coming out. (laughs) So your research has highlighted the importance of both listening and empathy as a way to address our current political differences and current political moment. Would you be able to talk about both listening and empathy as individual level tools to address polarization in the electoral system and maybe even within family or friendship groups where there are extreme differences? Sure. So I'll acknowledge it's tough. We're definitely in a political moment when the last thing a lot of people want to do is listen to people with whom they disagree. But the reason I keep, there's really two reasons, kind of fundamental reasons to me that I keep coming back to listening and empathy. And one is that the way I think about democracy is that in addition to institutions that we need in order to hold things together, we also need this attitude of just compassion for one another and seeing each other as human beings. And listening to me is a key ingredient for that. Just listening to the stories of other people, of what they love, what they're challenged by, what they hope to be different, can convey so much that enables us to not see people as evil or the other side, but just as people with valid, powerful concerns. And honestly, the other reason I keep coming back to it is a spiritual one for me. And and I draw... Um, just from my own faith tradition, that even when I feel like the right response is to fight or demonize people whom I think do not value me or what I do, 
I'm not going to contribute to a better world by responding with hate. And that the only try to keep my eyes set on how do I respond with love. And that may sound very Pollyanna-ish, and I don't always know how to translate that into practice. But I think that enables me to uh, stay interested in politics, continue to do what I do, and have hope for the future. And to me, practicing love in public life is about acknowledging that I may not be right and that it's necessary for me to try to understand where other people are coming from. And given just what I do for a living, like studying political behavior and having the, the privilege of teaching, that I need to create the opportunity for other people to do that with each other, whether it's creating tools for people to listen or creating classroom spaces where students can experience how joyful it is to hear each other talk about the course material, you know, a lot of times, but also their, their concerns in their life, their campus and their future. So listening and empathy, and this is the last thing I'll say on this, but they're not necessarily the same thing, but I do think that honing our empathy muscles in part involves listening, like sitting back and reflecting and listening. But it also at times requires the courage to speak up. And that's an, I, and honestly, in I think my own evolution, I'm, I'm trying to figure that's kind of where my head is these days. When do I move from creating spaces for listening to speaking up um, in a way that hopefully brings about democracy that I want to see. Do you try to apply a lot of these these ideas into like your classroom discussions and your public opinion classes? I do, and I, Claire can, you know, <laughs> yeah, yes. give her own perspective on it, but I do, I feel very fortunate that on this campus we have this project called the Discussion Project started in our School of Education that has trained a lot of us, a lot of instructors on campus, how to use small group discussion in our classes as a way to both enable the students to learn the material more deeply but also create a, a space that's welcoming to all the students because everybody knows that feeling of when discussion in a classroom is operated along the lines of an instructor saying a question and then whoever feels like responding, raising their hand, it's not a welcoming environment because it, it, it sort of gives voice to students who are able to put their thoughts together quickly and feel comfortable speaking in front of a bunch of other people. But one of the things the discussion project teaches us is how do you create a discussion protocol, we call them, in which students take turns facilitating and then also reporting out. And you build in, you try to insist that the, the facilitator keeps careful time so that everyone has a say on every question. And that there's also a chance for students to just have a little back and forth as well. And so I try to incorporate these ideas in my classrooms using that discussion project uh, instruction, but also just by modeling compassion, I think, for my students, because I feel as though it's an enormous privilege to have the job that I do. And it's an enormous privilege to be able to try to create a space in which I'm conveying to my students in however I can that I respect you and value you and know that you have really important things to say and people don't get that vibe 
often in our culture, right? Like we don't often create spaces for each other in which we're saying, no, really, I want to know what you have to say. It's a work in progress. I, I feel like mm-hmm. I'm <laughs> constantly figuring out how to do this better. But that's also, I mean, one valuable thing I've learned over the years is to ask for frequent feedback from my students. So thankfully, students in this class at Clara's with me, a lot of them at the end of most class days, it just depends if we run out of time or not, fill out an anonymous reflection form in which they're telling me what worked, what didn't, what their questions are, and building in, like trying to signal to students, I'm here for you and I want to create a space that works for you. Yeah, it's an amazing class, so. <laughs> Thanks, Claire. You're so, no so under, no, under no pressure to say so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel under pressure to say so. Um, I guess just going off of that, do you think that teaching classes like public opinion, do you think that teaching a class like public opinion is different now from when you started at UW-Madison? And you talked already about how you kind of engage in classroom discussions, but has that changed over time? Yeah, a lot, I think. I mean, the way in which I teach it has changed a lot. And I, I don't, I hope to never teach a lecture again. I mean, I always, even, I mean, our class is, I think it's maybe 64 students. Mm-hmm. So the nature in which I teach has changed. But also, I mean, the political culture just seeps in. And, and the nature of issues that students bring into the classroom, there's like a heaviness in classrooms now that I don't remember. And partly I've matured and aged, you know, so it's, it's a little bit hard to tell what's me maturing as an instructor and what's the changes in society. But the things that you all bring into class, whether it's like the climate, we're in a climate crisis, right? We're in a political crisis in which there's like daily questions about whether our democracy is going to persist. The economy, I mean, the, the level of anxiety our students have about what their future economic life is going to be like is very different than when I started teaching a little over 20 years ago. And mental health, the mental health issues are extraordinary. And I, I, it, it's, that is bewildering to me in, in trying to understand how to ease that burden for students because so many students come in with anxiety or depression that I I think we are more vocal about it now than we were 20 years ago, which is great, but I don't think it's just that people are talking about it more. I think the level of mental health, issues with mental health in our society is incredible. So that is all aside from political polarization, right? And another thing that's happening is Students are aware of political polarization. I think they're more on edge about having conversations about politics. And the environment is such that beyond our campus, there are all kinds of allegations about the nature of political conversation within our classrooms, which frankly does not help. Because when people are saying that certain student voices are not welcome in our classroom, you start a semester with that being the atmosphere. What do, for example, conservative students think is going to happen in the classroom? It's very difficult to convince students otherwise when they walk in with that attitude that they're going to not—that they're going to be silenced and their voices aren't going to be welcomed. Last question I'll ask on this, and then we can move on. But do you think? 
I, I mean, I love your ethos and just like how motivated you are in terms of your values of sharing compassion all the time. But is that something that you are optimistic can be taught to people? Oh, absolutely. Right. Like I just, I mean, look at our class and I, I mean, I get to see students' journal entries and the things they write in those reflection forms at the end of the day. And I do believe it can be taught because students regularly remark in that class that they've never had the opportunity to have a conversation with other students on campus like this, right? Like they have friends, they have, they attend clubs, but they've never had an excuse to talk about issues related to politics, right? And they recognize the feeling of how that can feel good, not horrible. And they recognize that they themselves have the skills to do it. And um, you all are moving out into the world and are future leaders. And you will be doing this in, in your workplaces, in your families. I've seen it work, right? And not just in my own classrooms, but I do know that it can be taught. As we're starting to come to time here and we want to be respectful of the time that you've given us, we wanted to quick ask about uh, the media and what are some of your go-to sources for information, especially now that we're kind of in a phase where uh, disinformation, misinformation can really be a threat to our institutions and our elections. What are some of your go-to sources? Well, I don't use social media at all, which is probably... That's a really important indicator of how I get my news. And I mm-hmm. used to. I used to use Twitter in particular to have a sense. Um, there's just a lot of communication among journalists and political scientists on Twitter, or used to be, that I used to find very helpful. But I also came to not trust it. <laughs> um, so I rely on Wisconsin Public Radio and National Public Radio a ton. I think the reporting is excellent. And I also find in just the nature of my life is such that I get a lot of my news audibly (laughs) while I'm doing other things. Mm -hmm. So podcasts, public radio, I also do subscribe to both local papers. So um, the Cap Times, you don't have to subscribe to get access, but Cap Times Online, the Wisconsin State Journal, I still get a hard copy of the State Journal in my driveway because I believe, I strongly believe in local news and the importance of it in our democracy. And then I read the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel to get a little bit more state news, Washington Post and New York Times. And then I find the uh, the writing in the Atlantic magazine is it's somewhat left-leaning, but um, very often really helpful to me in understanding, you know, broader. It allows me to step back even more than daily news to think about things. And then The Economist, I don't get to as often as I would like, but I find that really helpful for helping me situate what's going on in U.S. democracy with other places around the world. That's yeah. a lot of sources. Yeah, well, I don't read them at all. <laughs> well, you know, we, I'm fortunate in that it's part of my job, you know, and I, but I don't read each of those every day, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> this question makes me laugh. Amy wrote, thoughts on social media and what to do about it. Oh. <laughs> I believe in the work that I've done with the Local Voices Network, I, I was a huge skeptic of social media and, and technology before I met my colleague, Deb Roy, who runs the Center for Constructive Communication at MIT, that, and then the, the nonprofit Cortico that has, with whom I've helped create the Local Voices Network. I've learned from them the many, the many different things that you can do, but currently, because of the, basically, the business model of social media, it, that 
you know, it operates by selling users to advertisers and that model means that they implement whatever they can to make sure that we stay engrossed, um, that we post things that other people will want to look at, and it's not a great formula because the things that draw us in and keep us attached or immersed are, are not the things that I think we need, which are reflective, nuanced communications about each other. Is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that, that we should cover before we start to wrap up? Well, I would just love to know your thoughts. Like, <laughs> as people, you know, about to graduate and go out into the world, I, I guess two things. One, what do you wish for s- future students on this campus? And then also just what gives you each hope as you move out there in the world? That's a good. Those are. I've never been asked this. I know. Oh boy. Um, well, I think for the future students part, this is something that totally comes from class the other day. Mm-hmm. But just talking about different students' experiences on campus right now, I think there's so there's such a gap between what the especially like white affluent student experiences and then what everyone else experiences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And especially the ones who fit the kind of state school, like, uh, stereotype of, like, loving sports and wanting to go and, you know, go to frat parties on the weekend versus what everyone else experiences on the campus. And not to say that there aren't really, really great things for other people on campus, but I would hope that the gap between the quality of those experiences closes um, and that it feels less catered toward the former and more. Yeah. That's a good answer. I'm gonna piggy pack off of that actually. I have um, I have a roommate who's Asian American and she experiences a lot of different things than me and my other roommate do. And it's yeah. really it's really important to listen to and to hear. And I'm grateful that I have her to hear about those experiences with because I wouldn't know about them otherwise. And I think that I would really like to see just awareness Um, being raised more often on campus about things that are happening and not just awareness but also action and also on that note um, but I work with one of the school publications and we do try to incorporate um, diversity in the reporting that we do and what we cover and I think that that's good and I think that we should also cater more to like looking at the good things that are happening to our diverse group of students because sometimes it's important to raise both awareness of the bad things that are happening but also the the good things that are happening to those groups and to not just focus on the poor things but like look at all these amazing things that people are doing on campus too yes okay (laughs) so what gives you hope I think it's such a like tired answer in some ways (laughs) but I think just talking with other people who feel similar concerns about the world And, like, there's so many people that feel similar concerns about the world, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't necessarily automatically solve them, but it's good to know that you're not alone in your worries about what's going on. Yeah. I think that I'm really hopeful that people really want to take action, too, right now, at least people that I talk to. And a lot of people in my groups, I feel like, want, want to do something about the issues that are happening and aren't feeling as hopeless or feeling like oh, I'm, I'm fed up and I want to make it better. So I yeah. think that that's what gives me hope. That's so great mm-hmm. to hear. 
Thank you for indulging me. Thank you for asking. That was a little philosophical moment. I appreciated that. We're going to end on a much more casual note, but we just want to ask you if there's anything you're looking forward to this summer, if you're spending a summer in Madison and enjoying all that that is. Yes. I mean, summers in Madison are glorious and Thank goodness for our terrace. I just, this is, <laughs> the Memorial Union and the Union Terrace are just two of my favorite places on the earth. But yeah, I have a great summer ahead. I am getting married in June. So I'm uh, really looking forward to that and time with my family. And yes, uh, it's, uh, it's going to be a great summer. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Oh my goodness. That's so exciting. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so so much. Thank you so much. For more information on 1050 Bascom, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. The podcast is edited by Claire Salmi, Fiona Hatch, and Cole Wozniak, and is produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.